All right, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson, and we're here um, all together on this wonderful Sunday night. Um, in the past, um, people have asked me, are you ever going to run out of topics? You know, there's only so many things that you can talk about. And my answer is, as long as there, as there are remaining sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, <laughs> we will not run out of things to talk about. So tonight we're going to be looking at um, Doctrine and Covenants section 77, um, one of my favorites. And we have assembled another wonderful panel. Uh, first of all, at my left is Bruce. Bruce, you've been with us a couple times back in the basement. Um, I have. Welcome to the new studio, by the way. Thank you. It's very nice. It's coming along, but um, and I've always enjoyed your 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 input. So so here you are with the mic. Does it feel does it feel a little little scary? It's okay to be scared when you're new. <laughs> I peed a little, but I needed to. So. <laughs> All right, and also um, returning. You've done this once or twice, Randy. Yeah, welcome been, back. I've been here once before. Good to be back. Glad to be here. Thank you. And um, uh, one of our our favorites. Um, coming back again, uh, Brian. Welcome back, Brian. Always a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure, indeed. So, um, you know, sometimes people ask me why we have a lot of men on the panel, not very many women. And the answer is because men like stupid shit more than <laughs> more than women do. <laughs> oh, that goes for the swear jar. I've got my new swear jar, a dollar in um, uh, right out of the gate. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I was going to try to... Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up now. I didn't know about the swear jar. I could have got myself in trouble. Apparently, um, I've been dropping a lot of F-bombs lately, I've been told. so. Um, is, there, is there a correct amount? There, there's not a correct amount, but it is a dollar for me every time I um, say shit or fuck um, on the podcast. And I won't say because that would just get me in trouble with the feminists. Over the top. Uh, that jar is getting full rather quickly tonight, John. <laughs> All right. So speaking of, of speaking of swears, let's uh, jump into Doctrine and Covenants section seventy-seven. Now, of course, the the layout of Doctrine and Covenants um, to the lay reader is going to be somewhat arbitrary. Matter of fact, I've tried to figure out how they've done it, and it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, some of it is tradition, um, and there's been different editions where the Doctrine and Covenants have been messed with quite a bit. And um, the last time it was messed with a lot was in 1879, which is when this section um, was inserted into the Doctrine and Covenants. So this particular writing from Joseph Smith does date to 1832, which is in the Wild West phase of Mormonism, <laughs> where things were changing by the month or by the day, um, uh, which, which means this is probably... Probably a little bit more Sidney Rigdon than Joseph Smith, but um, that's um, shrouded in the veil of history. I'm sure there's somebody out there who knows, but not me. Um, so DNC 77 came from the early, this is the pre-Kirtland time of the church and really pre-even um, Missouri, you know, because those, those two things happened simultaneously. And um, this was uh, from back in... Um, uh, Hiram, Ohio, which is just outside of Kirtland. So right when, right when things were, were getting going. Um, and this is when Joseph was spending a lot of time coming up with a lot of new stuff. If you look at the arc of his revelation, tons of it came out in this really early period, which is kind of fascinating because it predates most of the doctrinal innovations that we think of modern Mormonism. Um, you know, at this time, Joseph Smith was still Trinitarian and things like the temple and the concept, the Mormon concept of heaven and all that stuff didn't even, didn't even exist. But what I like about this is it shows very early on the millennialist focus, the focused, the, or I should say the, um, apocalyptic focus that the world was just about to end. End is near. Absolutely. And when they pulled the saints out of New York and told them to go to Kirtland, if you read what the missionaries were saying at the time, it was very, you got to get the hell out of Dodge because the world is about to end. And both the gatherings in Missouri and in Kirtland, especially Nauvoo, not quite as much, but those early ones were very much about, um, but they're bomb shelterish <laughs> is, is, is the best way to put that. I wonder if that's why the, the story of Noah is so popular. In, uh, in church because it's the idea that, uh, there's somebody in the know and trouble's coming and people are gonna die and you better listen to our message or else. And that, that fits the, the second coming exactly the same way. Yeah, it's the ultimate validation, right? 
because the rest of those poor slobs drown <laughs> in the um, drown in the flood, right? That they're going to get their upcomings. Yeah, there's kind of a desire for that, even in in John the Revelator saying how these certain Jews were actually not part of the synagogue. They're in the synagogue of Satan, and there's a desire for them to get it. Just like with Brigham Young, can't wait till the rest of the Gentiles get it because they deserve it. Yeah, it's 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 really fascinating how much of this rhetoric about end times is not as much about the reward that we're going to get as much as the the rest of you are going to get yours. All those people who got to drink alcohol and wear awesome clothes and go skiing on Sunday, they're going to get it now finally. Right. It'll it's be like worth a, it for me. It's the jealousy revenge uh, <laughs> marriage right there where like, oh, you get to... You go out to drink and you can have sex and not married and I can't and that sucks. Well, Jesus will make it right and he'll just show you. Wait. Like, <laughs> that's just bitterness. It, and the question is how much of that can last? I, I saw a debate and I don't remember who, between a noted evangelical and a noted atheist. And the atheist basically asked the question, how can you possibly sit back and enjoy your heaven knowing that most of humanity, and let's face it, no matter what, if you're, if you're Mormon or evangelical or Whatever, most of the people are going to be in hell, right? So how can you sit back and enjoy your, your heaven knowing most people are in hell? And their answer was, well, God is going to erase from our minds the knowledge <laughs> that these people are even down there. Um, oh, nice. Because, but to, to, and it, 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 it's, it's funny how... That's found in uh, the book of Kenny, chapter 14, <laughs> verse 2. Well, it, it, it's, it's funny how you can, when you have a religious view and you're challenged... How quickly you can just make new shit up. Oh, there goes the jar again. <laughs> well, that's why I said that about the book of Kenny, because like I always want to say, says who, when people make up their own doctrine like that. Right, right, right. Says who. That's like that joke that somebody goes and says, well, you know, Jesus believes that you should not do this and do this and do this. And well, where does Jesus say that? Well, or clearly you know? he means yeah. this and clearly he was implying that. Right. I mean, that, that, but that's, that's what people are doing. Now they have to establish a, a line of authority. Um, which is during this time of Joseph Smith was a big thing for him to establish that he was giving revelation and no one else could, um, uh, because it, 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 it's, it's really, it's really hard. Sarah, Sarah Silverman, as a matter of fact, have you guys seen this, that new one this PSA be- just from today? Uh, you know, it's January 26th right now. Um, she, where she has Jesus come and tell her that it's, it's this, it's his message about early access to abortion. And Jesus says something to her. Well, she says, well, how will anybody believe me that you, you, you actually came and saw me? And he, and he's like, well, they will hear this message. Even if they think you're kidding, they'll still get the message. But it shows that trap. Yeah. She's making fun of it, but that's the foundation yeah, of religion. Yeah, no, he says that's, that's the test. If they're really my listeners, they will know that you are my prophet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah, several times. So Joseph Smith at the time was going through the Bible. And um, this revelation actually marked the end of part of his study. After this, they kind of they kind of abandoned um, going through the Bible. So, if you recall, Joseph Smith translates the Book of Mormon. Then he goes and writes the Book of Moses. Y- you know, in um, you know, in Crime and Punishment, when Riskalnikov kills, I don't want to spoiler alert, uh, um, kills the kills the old woman's um, daughter. And, you know, he goes to kill this landlady, this woman who's, he believes is evil and because he's a moral superman. Um, he has the right to do so. And this, this brilliantly, um, Dostoevsky puts this other girl. She kind of wanders in the picture. And so Raskalnikov has to chop her up with an axe too. And he never, he never seems bothered <laughs> by that at all. Well, you know, people like argue about like the golden plates and then there's the papyri and all this kind of stuff. And no one ever talks about the book of Moses that Joseph Smith just like penned off one <laughs> afternoon without anything in front of him. And no one ever seems bothered by that. It seems kind of de facto proof that Joseph Smith was just making shit up. Damn it. Ding. I'm... You're gonna have to, your bleep sound's gonna have to be like a, like a ka-ching sound. <laughs> well, that's the argument between the seer stone and the Urim and Thummim. Cause he was, actually had the gift all along. <laughs> didn't need the Urim and Thummim, didn't need the seer stone. <laughs> it was just training wheels. Right, right. And then he just had a straight line to God where he 
wrote the book of Moses and God forgot to say anything about black people. Well, <laughs> you, you know, he, he hit a point where he was in his prophetic career. He didn't need source material anymore. He just, he, he had managed to jack straight into that conduit to God at that point. So well, except that's 1830, but, and then he's needing the papyri again in 1836, 1837. So I, I mean, I've heard that you didn't make that up, Randy. I've heard that before, but yeah, um, well, he needed some, he needed some way to advertise, you know, so they, they had the papyri and the mummies because the, the straight conduit obviously didn't pan out well enough. So, well, and, and okay. So during this time, he's also doing this translation of the, of the Bible, which, you know, we can argue back and forth about the translation of reformed Egyptian and the translation of the, of the papyri. But there's hardly any knowledgeable Mormon scholar who they'll just wince at the word translation. Even the church, I think, um, either last year or earlier in two, two, I think 2013, 2012 made a statement where they sort of redefined the word translation <laughs> of the, of the Bible because no one can open Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible and say this has any sort of it's authority. Although for a hundred years in the church, they took it that way. I mean, even when I was in seminary back in the 1880s, <laughs> set 19, 1980s, old, in the 1980s, um, the, we talked about as if, you know, I remember a seminary teacher getting excited saying, I don't know why anybody even reads the regular version. Here's the Joseph Smith version, you know? <laughs> well, and I remember that too. And I would have been in seminary in, you know, the late nineties. So it, it held on really, I think, into the internet age. Well, and this is the chapel versus internet Mormon. I think if you went and pulled most Mormons, they would still say that, that, that thing, Ab- right? Absolutely. Um, so th- this is part, this section 77 is part of that, um, where he and Sidney Rigdon would go through and they would analyze the, the Bible. And a lot of Joseph Smith's revelations came out of this reinterpretation of the Bible and then the school of prophets and the school of the elders, whatever they called, where they would, they would get together two or three times a week, especially in the winter. Remember, they were farmers. So, um, so they would, they would sit around and they would bullshit about all this stuff. And then they'd come up with new revelations and, 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 and all that. So, so DNC 77, March 1832, there, there is some questions that are, are penned. This is a, this is a different section because it's a Q and A. There are 14 verses, 15 verses, and each one starts with a question. And then because it's, it's identified as a revelation, I'm sure there's apologists who will say, no, this was just Joseph and Hiram just playing around. But it's been, in the scripture since 1879, canonized. It says revelation given to Joseph Smith right there at the top of the page. Um, um, and there's a quote. This is in the regular 1981 version. Um, the prophet wrote, in connection with the translation of the scripture, I received the following explanation of revelation of St. John. So um, Joseph believes this to be revelation from God. And here in a few weeks, we're, we're going to actually open up the can of worms, which is the tight versus loose translation theories. <laughs> um, and um, we it, it plays out in things like this. Was Joseph actually hearing Revelation, or is he just getting warm feelings that he would just sort of penned out into prose? And that that's a question. Um, some of this, okay, so let's talk about the book of Revelation for a little bit. I loved the book of Revelation. <laughs> I have read the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. I've probably read the book of Genesis a hundred, two hundred times. And, and the Genesis is still the best part of the Bible. Uh, in my, my, just completely the best part of the Bible. And the book of Revelation is just a psychedelic, weird, screwed up thing. And I've, I've, I recently read a book on the, on the book of Revelation. Um, they talked, they took, did modern scholarship and they went through and they talked about it and what all the theories were. It was a fascinating book. I can post the reference to it. The bottom line is the scholars basically agree the book of Revelation is just weird, crazy shit that doesn't make any sense. And because it's that way, everybody at any given time in history has been able to interpret it however they wanted. Um, and this is one of the powers of all religions in my mind. It's genius. It is absolutely genius. It's, it's, it's almost like an acid trip. Everything is figurative and there's imagery. And Joseph Smith explains it with actually 15 verses. And the fact that it's imagery and figurative means it's a compressed communication. So if he's explaining it, it would be a, you know, several books to explain all this. But he's exhausted trying to make stuff up. <laughs> and so at the end of 15, they say, you know, and, and so and so. And someone wrote, 
I'm looking at the Institute study guide for uh-huh. DNC 77. And this, it's from Smith and Shodal commentary it says the section 77 is not a, obviously, it's not a complete interpretation of the book. It is a key. A key is a very small part of the house. It unlocks the door through which an entrance may be gained, but after the key has been turned, the searcher for treasure must find out for himself. And then they say, the Lord has in this section given his people a key to the book as Champollion by the key furnished in the brief test on the Rosetta Stone was able to open the secrets of Egyptian hieroglyphics. <laughs> so the Bible student should be able to should be able to read the apocalypse with a better understanding of it by the aid of this key. And the genius is keep everybody busy, just like with the symbology in the temple. Just just keep them busy. Keep them feeling like there's something wrong with them, which is why they haven't figured it out. Whereas you're you're not going to look at it and say this is nutty, and and criticize or even examine the source material. Absolutely. So I mean, let's look at what we have here. We have this book that by this time's been around for. 1600, 1700 years has been perplexing mankind has been the driving force for all sorts of violence and wars and justification of all sorts of horrors over the last, the previous 1700 years. Finally, the shroud of darkness of the great apostasy lifts and God has scant 15 verses <laughs> to cast light on this book that has been a mis- mystery. And this is what, this is what we get. just 15 questions. They got to the end of that. And we've just got these, if not for these 15 points, the rest is solid. This is the cipher for understanding the book of Revelation. The, the Rosetta Stone. Yes. Well, what's, what's funny about this book, uh, this chapter, is it doesn't leave you, for the most part, any clearer on any of this stuff than, than when you start. And, and maybe we need to quit teasing it and just, just dive into it. There's a couple of important things that we're going to spend a little bit of time on here. And, why, and you'll see before... We end why I chose to um, talk about this, not because I'm a big fan of the mysteries of the Revelation. Okay, let's start with question number one. And this is there's 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 basically two really big gems in here for Mormons, maybe three. We'll see how we go. That the Mormons have jumped on and riffed on. First question: What is the sea of glass spoken of by John, fourth chapter and sixth verse of the Revelation? The answer: It is the earth in its sanctified, immortal, and eternal state. Now, this, I think, predates, um, the, well, this, not, not I think, this predates some of the other doctrines that came along later, but this goes in with um, the, the, the belief in the celestialization of the earth, which is that it will turn into a giant ball of glass, <laughs> a giant Yerma and Thummim, where anybody can gaze in and see everything that's going on in the universe. I just think that was a fun idea because I had questions. Like that's that was kind of what helped me like leave stuff on the shelf for a while because like, mm. well, I have to remember to look that up when I get to heaven because what went on there? I'd love to see the you know, like the the nativity scene or the first vision or whatever. I'd be real disappointed. It, it's it's interesting that this is not only here. This appears in other places in Mormon doctrine. It is a firmly established doctrine that the world will be turned into a giant glass. Urim and Thummim. It's in the Articles of Faith. Yeah. It's, it's but, really. But in all the artwork, <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you never see, like, like this is firmly established, but there's some doctrines that are so weird that even though everybody believes them, they don't actually believe them, and that this is one of them. Sure, we'll have to lay down AstroTurf and put in potters of trees and things like that. Right. Well, well, I mean, you're still going to eat, right? So Glass. Only if you want. Well, then you'll so radiate at some point you're going to need to go take a dump or something. Is no, it? Is you, it all going to be? You, is a glass all the way down? Your body will perfectly use all the uh, oh, okay. all the material. <laughs> they have glass. human centipedes in heaven, so <laughs> there's magic. no bath. Plus, we, we all know the most entertaining place to send all eternity is on what's essentially a flat glass sphere. I hope you like uh, ice skating. <laughs> yes, it, it sounds very entertaining. Uh, um, yeah, so. Sanctified, immortal, and eternal state. Oh, okay. Question number two. What are we under, now we're getting into some of the weird shit. Now, what do we understand by the four beasts spoken of in the same verse? And, and in this one, Joseph Smith says, they're figurative expressions used by the revelator John of describing heaven and blah, 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 blah. And it says a bunch of other stuff that's just other, it's, it's tautological nonsense. <laughs> um, 
And throwaways like, the spirit of man is in the likeness of his person. Well, that's really odd since the spirit was created in eternity before the person. You know, so if you, if you're born with some kind of palsy or your, you know, your left arm is not fully developed, that used to be the norm for the explanation. Oh, you must have done something to anger God. That's right, or your parents did something, yeah. Um, then the next question, are there four bees, limited individual bees, or do they re- represent classes or orders? Now, this is, this is what sort of annoys me that I was... In. So let me read that question again. Are the four bees limited to individual bees, or do they represent classes or orders? Really? You have 15 questions to ask God about the book of Revelation. This is one of them that you come up with? The, 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 whether they're classes or orders? Uh, and the, are, the, are there 7 million zebras, or is it just this one? Is that yeah. all the zebras? That's right. Um, oh, but they have six wings, and they're filled with eyeballs. So it's like Avatar. Planet yeah, yeah, Avatar. yeah. Now you're jumping ahead to question four, but what are we to understand by the eyes and wings, which the beast had? What I really like about the answer is it ends in et cetera, et cetera. So, <laughs> oh, you know. Their eyes are representation of light and knowledge. That is, they are full of knowledge. And their wings are representation of power to move, to act, et cetera. That's, it's, that's oh, very okay, useful. Okay, thank you. So the beast, so their eyes are representation of knowledge. And their wings represent power, like to move. You know, like to act, to take action in stuff. The, the yeah. temple would be far more cool if we had wings as emblems of our power than aprons. <laughs> <laughs> if we didn't dress up like bakers, but we could actually dress up like Vikings and Valkyries. <laughs> no, but then, then you're going into then would, totally other. And then uh, in, in the celestial room, we'd have fake sword play. <laughs> well, yeah, there used to be a guy with a sword in the temple. Maybe that's a topic for another day. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so, so he, he goes on with these, with these questions, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're, the answer, I, I'm not even going to bother reading them to you, but let's skip ahead to, to verse seven. No, we gotta, we gotta do six. Okay, we gotta yeah. do six. So six, when, when he said we were doing this particular, uh, section, verse six is what I already, I didn't have to look it up. I knew about this one. This is a, an important verse in my life. Um, I, I grew up being, well, re- read it to us first. All right. So, so here, here goes. What are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? The answer is it says, We are to understand that it contains the revealed will, mysteries, and the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance or its temporal existence. Now, evolution was something that always made a lot of sense to me growing up. And when people would say, Oh, your church thinks that the world's only 6,000 years old. I thought, oh, that's absurd. It's, you know, 6,000, it's a period of, you know, six days. It's, it's a metaphor, whatever. We're not strictly young earth creationists. But right here in, in verse six, it says that the temporal existence of the earth is only 7,000 years old. The church is doctrinally young earth creationism. Yes. And so while we're on that, the, the, I was going to just use verse seven question is, what are we to understand by the seven seals in which it was sealed? We understand the first seal contains the things of the first Mm -hmm. thousand years, and the second also the second thousand, and so on until the seventh. So the point that's being raised in the sixth is is sealed, as it were, in the next verse, where it's very clear that the temporal lifespan of the earth is 7,000 years. Yeah, there's no wiggle room here. It's not a metaphor. It's not time periods. It's 7,000 temporal years of existence. He couldn't, if he was trying to say it as clearly as possible, that's probably a good way to have done it. Yeah, that's, that's even better in the study guide. It says the seven seals of the apocalyptic volume are a seven great days during which Mother Earth will fulfill her mortal mission, laboring six days and resting upon the seventh, her period of sanctification. These seven days do not include the period of our planet's creation. And preparation is a dwelling place for man. They are limited to Earth's temporal existence, that is, to time, considered as distinct from eternity. So that's eternity, sorry, I think I said maternity. But well, doesn't it bring they're separating it from God's years. They're saying the only measure of time is the Earth's years. Yeah, 
Uh, I was going to say Brigham Young, I think once said in eternity is 2.4 million years, but Brigham <laughs> yeah. Young said a lot of crazy shit. Well, well that, um, the Catholic Dr. Church Evil said is exactly three. <laughs> 2.4 million years. Yes, well, yes. I, I like the, I like the decimal point. To um, that, to that number, I've actually, I was reading somewhere today and I don't remember the reference, but somebody said that basically 2.6 million years it comes from 365 which is a day on earth so that's or sorry year on earth and days right times by the old one day for god is it you know thousand years for men and that's where that figure at least according to this thing i was reading that's where it comes from fascinating and i was gonna i was gonna highlight that you just did that what bruce said Uh, in pearl great price joseph smith defines that the time of the star kolob is one day on Kolob is equal to a thousand earth years. So there's this shorthand in Mormonism of a day that sometimes is significant of a thousand years. Um, is, is there any, I'm, I'm, we have, a, we have a former evangelical in our audience. Is there any, is, is, does that show up in, in evangelical belief at all? The, 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 the connotation of a day being a thousand years, or is that something that's strictly Mormon? Oh, okay, so it's 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 not just something that Mormons do. This is this is something that somewhere else is, but no collab to be. <laughs> so, so once again, we have one thing that we think is uniquely Mormon, and uh, we sadly get shot down yeah. and see that it's not as creative as we thought it was. So, so we've got this 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 thousand years. So, so, so there are Mormons out there who will tell you the Earth is actually. 14,000 years old because oh. the creation was seven days. <laughs> Um, of God's days. I like the recognition that 7,000 isn't long enough for Earth's history. Right, right. Oh, but 14 will Yeah, do. yeah, yeah. I'll tell you. I'll get, you, I'll get you one step closer. Oh, we can, we're, we're closer to the evolutionary, you know, 10 billion years because we, we'll give, we'll throw them another seven and change. 14,000. Well, you know, 14,000 versus, you know, four and a half billion. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's about the same. It so, was warmer and sped things up back then. Yeah. Well, yeah. God, yeah. That's why people live longer. Inish Goan dish was actually closer to the earth, and it warmed the earth and sped up evolution. The what dish? Inish Goan dish. Uh, you Isn't win that the, the geek sun? of the night award. For I, I just he saw no, that reference. He has no notes in front of him. He pulled that out of his head. Ass. <laughs> Some, sometimes it's the same thing. Always the same thing. So, so, um, so yeah, um, 7,000 years for the temporal existence of the world, um, which would be the time from the fall of Adam. So Adam partook of the fruit seven, well, a little bit under 6,000 years ago. And this is where things are getting problematic. When we were kids back in the seventies and eighties, they would rail on this point because, because the Christ came in the, um, the meridian of time, which was 4,000 years in. <laughs> and you can get Skousen's whole series that'll explain this entire breakdown of the eras and the different prophets and different times. And the, the 2000, it was, we were coming near the end and we're, we're going to see some of the, the stuff that has to happen in the, in the end. And with each passing year, this becomes a little bit more problematic. I wonder if this is why the church is such a hard sell in like really old cultures. The Chinese and the Indians are like, 7,000 years ago, the earth was created. We, our culture's older than that. Like our civilization's yeah, yeah, yeah. been around way longer than that. We got stuff are in the museum kidding? that's a thousand years before your earth was created. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Um, verse eight. What are we to understand by the four angels spoken of in the seventh chapter and first verse of Revelation? We are to understand that there are four angels sent forth from God to whom is given power over the four parts of the earth to save life and to destroy. These are they who have the everlasting gospel to commit to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, having power to shut up the heavens, to seal up unto life, or to cast down to the regions of darkness. In Mormon theology, this comes up over and over again, they believe these angels are literal. The four destroying angels. And it's more than one prophet. I can't remember who. I I should have, I should have looked it up. Has said that they have been deployed. Now, I don't know what they've been doing. Probably getting really like tired sitting at their post waiting for the the end of... Tracking up Sky Miles. (laughs) Well, that I I think uh, the three Nephites got a little overworked. So they're uh, trying to pitch in there and, you know, help out. They've been moving someone for hundreds of years now because, you know, the uh, high priest didn't show up. All those flat tires aren't going to change themselves. Everybody knows it. So so we we got... um, 
So we've, we've got, we've got these seals, we've got the angels, the destroying angels that are sent. Get that, and, and this is a, this is an interesting Mormon twist. Um, because, and we're going to talk about Elias <laughs> in a minute here. But for Mormonism, and, and, and this is something that's kind of drifting away that I think most Mormons won't understand. Because we talked about in the very first part of the church, the foundation of the church and the end of the world were hand in hand. And all of those people believed that they were just, they were just gathering right before the end of the world and it was about to happen. Now that we have 170 years of space, this sort of, these sort of teachings don't make sense. But you can see here, Joseph Smith is blending this idea of apostasy and restoration with the, the destruction, with the apocalypse. And that they, they, they were inseparable. And now with all the space, that looks a little weird to us. And I think we've backed away from that a little bit. We talk about the opening of the last dispensation more so than we talk <laughs> about, you know, just here's the end. Well, the latter day, the idea of the latter day church must have been so ominous when it first started. Oh, the end is near. And now that's why probably their logo keeps changing to have Jesus Christ be bigger and latter day smaller because that's <laughs> clearly not too accurate. <laughs> But that really doesn't, I mean, it, it plays into, cause it's definitely there. I mean, I remember even overhearing at some point when I was a kid, like my parents talking with someone being like, you know, I really hope the second coming of Jesus comes pretty soon because I don't know how I'm going to be able to raise teenagers. And uh, that might be hard. It'd just be easier if Jesus would come and then I wouldn't have to deal with my kids actually growing up and being rebellious. I knew people early in my work career when I used to associate with Mormons more, um, who didn't participate in 401ks oh where, where, where is our witness uh friends who can tell you that like witnesses are famously bad for letting their people get educated and get um like sophisticated careers and people that go to college are kind of viewed askance from the from the lay people for investing in the future and and demonstrating that maybe there's some part of themselves that doesn't really believe that god's coming any second right right Okay, so we have the four angels deployed, and let's go on to number nine. What are we to understand by the angel ascending from the east? Um, Revelation 7th chapter and 2nd verse. We're to understand the angel ascended from the east is he whom is given the seal of the living God over the twelve tribes of Israel. Wherefore he crieth unto the four angels, having the everlasting gospel, saying, Hurt not the, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, Till we have sealed the servant of our God in the forehead. And if you receive it, this is Elias, which was to come to gather together the tribes of Israel and to restore all things. As a little aside, I don't, I don't, actually believers don't talk to me very much, but whenever in the past people would start talking to me about the 12 tribes or the 10 tribes, I would say, stop, stop, stop. Before we go forward, you have to pass my test, which is you have to tell me which two tribes are not lost. <laughs> just name them. Just name. Them. I mean, you're talking about the twelve tribes, so just name the two that are that aren't lost. <laughs> but they could never get it right. Never. I'm not. Even, I'm not even going to tell you what the right answer is. Um, but most people cannot get it right. So it's something they talk about all the all the time. <laughs> Good catch. <laughs> he caught but, himself. But he they, get points. They, he had to take a dollar out. I get take a dollar back. Oh. All right, thanks. Um, so, but let's talk about the real fun, fun thing in this verse. Mother's Day is coming up. <laughs> that was my catch. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, the real fun thing in this in this um, verse is Elias. Um, in the scriptures, um, we have part of it's written in Greek, and part of it that was written in Aramaic i.e. Hebrew. And there's different formations of different words. As a matter of fact, sometimes they show up differently. Like Jesus is the same name as Joshua. Those are the same two names. Just one is one. Well, Elijah is the Hebrew version, right? Uh And Elias is the Greek version of the same name. Um, this has become of recent times an embarrassment to, um, to Mormon biblical scholars. Because in Mormonism, it is imperative that these are separate people because Joseph Smith names them as that he saw them as two separate people. And he refers to them as two separate people all the time. And this is one of the verses. And if you read some of the commentaries, I read a few, they're comical as they try to backpedal around this. 
I know it's a calling, right? That's one of the arguments. That's one of the arguments, but not, um, not so. He had double vision. It was like an astigmatism. That's why when God appeared to him, it looked like one person. And then when Elijah came, he saw two of them. They looked exactly the same, and confu- was confused that way. It was just a vision problem. You have a promising career, young man. Thank you. Yes, in, in apologetics. Yeah, I, um, I think you need to so, quit your day job. So Elias for Joseph Smith is the restorer. This, this prophet who comes and returns the keys of, of the restoration, which we were talking about before, is the first step towards the destruction. Because the one thing we want to do, if we're going to, if we're going to burn the city down, the first thing we want to do is paint the, paint the facades back up again. So we're, we want to, we want to restore. And you're right, Ryan. That, that is one of the apologetic things. Elias is an office. I love, Much like the old timey terms, um, for, like, Brigham Young taught the same thing about Adam. The Adam was a the calling of Adam, a calling uh, or you know a name um, versus Michael. He's Michael, right? Right. So that there are many Adams. All the first men are called Adam. Would be the the, the response. So uh, Elias comes and restores everything. Um. So so the, let's go back to our our seven thousand years. What are the things spoken of in this chapter? When are the, th- what time are the things spoken of in this chapter to be accomplished? They are to be accomplished in the 6,000 years or the opening of the sixth seal. So these seals, um, in the, in the book of Revelation, they open up, they have this book and it has seven seals. And Mormons, because of the misuse of the word sealing, tend not to understand. <laughs> a seal would be a, a, like a wax, wax seal, seal yeah. that you would use to shut it up so that only the you know if it's been opened. So the only this, way to open is to break the seal. The only way to open is to break the seal. And as they open up the the seal, it's figurative of the. Now in the Revelation himself, John is seeing this. So he's seeing the seals broken and seeing these seven these seven periods of time. There's nothing actually in the Book of Revelation that says there are a thousand years. He's seeing these periods of time in this description. So in the Book of Revelation, it could be something that's happening in, on a Thursday afternoon. Um, but but. The interpretation is these are the openings and these are the things that happen during the, the thousand years. And there are some really creative, like trying to pin these different things that happen in these seals. And then when they get to the seventh seal, it again has seven seals inside the, the, so you, you get to open up each of those. Um, but this verse 10 is key again. Six thousand years between the, the, the fall of Adam and the, um, the beginning of the millennium, the second coming of Jesus. Um, this is scripture. These verses together, and let's let's we we've now repeated it three times in this <laughs> in this scripture. It's completely unambiguous. Can we all agree on this panel tonight that Mormons are young Earth creationists? Temporal years, like it's as clear as you can try and describe it in English. If if you wanted to say it, it was a metaphor, that was the moment. That's when you would have mentioned that. Put if you were trying around, to say it was literal, yeah. that's what you would have said. And and it would have been this brilliant opportunity because Darwin happens to be walking the planet when this scripture comes out. <laughs> and if you wanted to establish Joseph Smith's prophetic calling and his and the restoration of the church and the restoration of all things. Here, we're just a few scant years away from the publishing of The Origin of the Species. A book that would revolutionize the world at probably as much as any other book. That would, that would, that would literally change the way we think about everything. And here's this golden opportunity in 1832 in the scriptures coming from God, Revelation, to say, the creation is not literal, guys. <laughs> this is figurative. And there's other scriptures, even in Genesis, that can be interpreted in ways that support evolution. Here was God's <laughs> golden opportunity, and he missed it. It was teed up, and then he whiffed it. Yeah, well, and I mean, and not only is golden opportunity, that's the purpose of this section. If you read the description, it's to clarify what the book of revelation means. And here we have God saying no, this it's thousand years. That's uh that's it. That's the answer. Absolutely. He I mean, says, just to be clear, it's all made up. <laughs> I, I think, I think Randy, I mean, your, your, your point is great. It's, it's here, here it is. It's the clarification. This is the, the, the point we're going to demystify this stuff. And this is when it, when it comes in, you know. 
So, and, and interesting enough with, you know, Darwin and Origin of the Species was, um, a contemporary to this time period. But the other thing is, is you had Louis Pasteur and all the other people. Germ theory also were in the same place, which famously my, uh, microbiology professor who, uh, I went to college down in, uh, Orem, so, you know, close enough to BYU, but not actually on that campus. But he would point out, as he's talking about germ theory in our lecture, his funny thing was he would be like, and here we have germ theory, and he was had this really great, like, Swedish accent or something, but he'd be like, really bad impression. So, who was getting the real revelation? These guys here with germ theory, or Brother Brigham and Brother Joseph? Well, and if, if God had given them germ theory, it would have saved a lot of lives mm-hmm. in Nauvoo, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, could have made a big difference, uh, that whole building on a swamp thing. That germ theory might have been important to it's give a, to uh, Joseph and Brigham. It's, it's unfortunate. I mean, th- you're right. This information was just about to come out. God would have known that that book was ready to go to press about that same time. Germ theory, they, w- they would have known that that was all on the doorstep. How how competent would your prophet had looked if he had stepped up? Well, and I know we've said this before, you know, DNC 89, the dot, the word of wisdom. I mean, how, if God had said, Hey, wash your hands with soap. And, you know, you could sing the ABCs or the happy birthday song or, or you know, whatever. And hey, boil your water. You don't have to put coffee in it. No, I mean, that's optional. Uh, it could keep you awake at night, but just, 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 just boil the shit out of that water and then drink it and you'll be good. I mean, it's just some, some really easy things rather than say that, um, oats are for horses or whatever it says in there. Um, and, uh, so yeah. All right. So let's skip, let's skip, uh, let's skip verse 11. Um, uh, he talks about the 140. I'm probably skipping verse that people are like, this is my favorite thing. So the 144,000 who are sealed. Now, now let's, let's, <laughs> let's mention this because the sealing of the forehead is, is generally seen in most of Christendom as sort of a negative thing in the book mm-hmm. of Revelation. Um, but there's a positive connotation here. And of course, um, the, the temple ceremony still to this day practices sealing, um, on the forehead. Um, so we have the 144,000 that are sealed up to go to preach the gospel, and still no one knows what the 144,000 <laughs> means or what. I mean, it's 12,000 high priests from each of the 12 tribes, right? Because the 10 are going to come back. And remember, next time somebody tells that to you, you right. ask them, Nick, too, right? <laughs> Bob, Stephen, the tribe of uh, the other guys and stuff. <laughs> uh, um, and, and where are the 10 tribes? Lost. In the North Country. I, I believe, I believe I saw that documentary. They're out in space somewhere, aren't they? Well, they just haven't made it here I yet. I thought they're in the center yeah, under of the, the earth. earth. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the other one. It depends on, uh, which one you go with. Depends how good technology gets. The more we map, the, they move them. Yeah. Okay. So verse 12, what do we understand by the sounding of the trumpets mentioned in the eighth chapter of Revelation? So, and we're going to get back. And once again, I said three times, four times. Uh, we are to understand that as God made the world in six days, and on the seventh day he finished his work and sanctified it, and also formed man out of the dust of the earth, even so, in the beginning of the 7,000 years, will the Lord God sanctify the earth and complete the salvation of man, and judge all things, and shall redeem all things, except that which he had not put into his power, when he shall have sealed all things, unto the end of all things, and the sounding of the trumpets and the sound of the Chiasmus. Uh, this is a classic, by the way, if, if any of you are going to write your own scriptures, here's a classic move. Um, he, so keep saying all things. It shall redeem all things except that which he hath not put into his power. You always got to throw that, that, that kicker down in there. You, that, if you, you always have to say, I'm going to do this to everything except the things I'm not going to do it for. It, it's your catch-all. That way you can't yeah, lose. Yeah. Okay, um, so when are the things them to be accomplished which are written in the ninth chapter of Revelation? They're to be accomplished after the opening of the seventh seal before the coming of Christ. So in this theory of creation that, that Mormonism um, applies to, we're coming near the end of the sixth seal, the, the 6,000 years, and we'll open the, the millennial, 7, 000, the last 7,000 years, at which time there'll be a whole heap of destruction um, and now Mormons do not believe in the rapture. So Mormons will be preserved. Rather than plan on being raptured, they put wheat and ammunition in their basements. Um, 
I, the presumption I'm, is you just don't die. That's your gift. I'm not saying that facetiously. The Mormons are planning on holding up and waiting out the the destruction that precedes the coming of Christ. Yeah, that's why you get all the guns in Utah. It's like this this weird sort of desire to have bad guys come and you're going to protect the apocalypse. This is like this fantasy that is just so insane. I, well, I can't believe it's that popular. Yes, it's, it really is end. that popular. For instance, my, uh, my dad worked with a guy who literally, my dad had told him about, this guy has like dozens of AR-15s and he takes out the Boy Scouts and the young men from the ward and trains them. This guy's training his militia for the last days and is ready to <laughs> arm them. Now, the thing I don't know, I, I mean, I know there's people in the church who are into guns, but I would push back to say the church itself is into guns. There is a Western ethos of having guns. Now, Mormonism definitely teaches its members to have a year's worth of food stories storage and what i always ask people who tell me they have a year's worth of food storage is i always say then what (laughs) are you you hoping the world gets back together and when you come out of your fucking basement they're gonna be like oh welcome back thanks for hiding out down there where we've been trying to like plant some crops you dick Um, what what are you what are you gonna do when that stuff runs out what's the point you get to survive the apocalypse next year then you're like oh it's time to starve to death honey everybody else is dead i can tell you what they're gonna do they're gonna come out of the basements with their guns and they're gonna take our wheat that we planted well what they believe actually is that by that time jesus will come and redeem yeah um and they just don't like to say that that's really interesting though if you think about that this whole year supply thing like they well, have it pinned down that we're going to have all these things we've got to deal with, but it's only going to be a year. Well, like, been, it started at two years, didn't it? Well, it's been different things. That the, it's been dwindling. The, it, it's it's gone up. It's gone down. The, the 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 I've done some research into when this started. It basically started um, because um, first of all, there was a there was a there was you were supposed to have enough supplies when you left um, winter quarters, and we we're heading across the plains. But what, what you don't know about in church history law is they came out in 1847. Of course, most of them went immediately back. There was nothing here. And then the first 10 years of the immigration, it was really in poverty. They actually stopped the overplanes um, migration for a few years because people would come here and there was just literally nothing here, just mud huts. And they were trying to get their, 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 so they were really, really poor. So they started saying, you need, when you come to the valley, you need to have a year's worth of food, sort of as a survival mechanism. And then it would come and go. Of course, there were times when they would send people off down, you know, cause you'd hit Salt Lake and you might winter over there, but then Brigham might send you down to, you know, Penguin God knows where. Yeah. Um, so, so, so there was this, this constant need for not being burdened by people showing up with nothing. Now, what's funny is there would be reversals of that. Um, like when they started the hand carts, the church may actually, if you came, if you were a rich Scandinavian who showed up, the church made you sell everything. And then you were supposed to tithe it all. And then you just get a load of just the, the small. So they, um, which was a great socioeconomic leveler because the new people coming into the valley didn't have money to push around the old money. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, interesting. Um, Okay, so God made the world in six days. Um, that this stuff is going to happen in the seventh seal. So the, now we get back to Elias. This is a little bit important for Mormon. The last two um, verses in this in this chapter um, are, are, are actually pretty important for Mormonism. 14. What are we to understand by the little book which was eaten by John as mentioned in the 10th chapter of Revelation? We are to understand there was a mission... At an ordinance for him to gather the tribes of Israel. Behold, this is Elias who, as is written, must come and restore all things. So, so this Elias must come and restore. And some people actually identify Joseph Smith as Elias. Um, so this, this, this dude ha- which of course is. Yeah, you turn it into a calling. Hey, run with it. So, so there has to be this grand restoration. And, and remember this is from 1832 when most everybody's convert to the church, right? So they're coming out of this Protestant faith, which was was fairly millennialist. But they were establishing, well, how is Mormonism different? How is Mormonism special? And this this idea of restoration as part of the millennium. Once again, I want to emphasize that point. Verse fifteen is one that has spawned 
a lot of speculation. <laughs> um, what are we to understand by the two witnesses in the 11th chapter of Revelation? They are two prophets that are to be raised up to the Jewish nation in the last days at the time of the restoration and to prophesy to the Jews after they are gathered and have built the city of Jerusalem in the land of their fathers. So in the book of Revelation, there's these two people who um, stop the war of Gog and Magog. They, they stop the great last battle. And then in the um, book of Revelation, they're, they're killed and they lay dead in the streets for three, three days. days. Yeah. And then ambiguously, they're kind of restored. The LDS, the common LDS belief is that if you talk to young men, they believe it's missionaries. If you talk to everybody else, they believe it's two of the quorum of the twelve. The two of the quorum of the twelve will go to Jerusalem and they will hold off. <laughs> I, don't, I don't make this shit up. I'm serious. I did hear Mitt Romney's name pitched as, as that guy, by the way. Mitt Romney? Yeah, he'd, be, he'd win the presidency and oh, then go right, out there right. and he'd be one of the... So to these, two pro- these two prophets and prophets, seers, and revelators would be members of the quorum of the twelve would go to Jerusalem and their righteousness would hold off this last battle that eventually the powers of Satan would win over and they would be um, murdered in the streets and they would lay in the streets for three days. And the, and the laying in the straight streets for three days is significant of how evil the people are, that they wouldn't even bury these, these, these guys. They'd leave them there. And then they will be resurrected. And this is the thing that will kick off all the shit storm coming. So, um, for, for Mormonism, there is a common folk belief, and I'm not sure the source of it. I've heard it several different times that the, there are members of the current quorum of the 12 who know that they are this person because it's either in their patriarchal blessing or when they were set apart or whatever that they know that currently on the earth are the two who will um, die in the streets of Jerusalem. Do you think there's been an apostle this century that hasn't thought they were that guy? That's an interesting question. You know, so was it last week in the podcast where I said that they actually, that I believe they actually believe? Um, and now you're calling my bluff and you're saying, do they actually believe to the extent they believe this stuff? Well, I mean, the, these verses haven't changed in a long time and people who are super into this stuff have been like thinking about it really hard. Well, you know, when the Jerusalem Center was built, and that was like 85, 87, when BYU opened, opened the, the Jerusalem Center. Um, and it was under the assurance um, to the Israeli government that this would not be a religious or proselyting center. But everybody was whispering, oh, you know how easy it is for two apostles to go dedicated as a temple or whatever? That it was, it was a sign that we were getting the foothold there that would be the fulfillment of, of, of this particular verse. Um, I never even thought about the Jerusalem center, like what a stretch that was to actually go and build that there. Oh. Like, of course, they need to go someplace to sleep while they're prophesying in the street. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. it's like if I went and started building 7-Elevens and Pizza Huts around the temple lot in Missouri. Well, but if, if you were a faithful Mormon and you saw the, like, you found, suddenly read an article that the church had got the franchise rights to Pizza Hut in Mumbai and they were putting up 20 Pizza Huts. That's what you would tell yourself. Well, this is just, this is just, well, first of all, so we can introduce them to American culture, which will make them more receptive to the gospel. And then be like, you know how easy it would be to turn this into a baptismal font for baptism? Yeah, look, the look, look, there's a walk-in freezer. And if you look at it, there's, there's a symbol on the wall. We have beef in there. There's going to be those 12 oxen holding the font. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, or you've got the guys of, uh, now that we're in there, we can purchase real estate. You know, that, that, that multi-acre plot that is for that distribution center that they keep talking about for those pizza huts. Well, right. we all know what that really is. Yep. Yep. I've heard urban legend that the uh, Jerusalem Center was set up and built such that it could be converted into a <laughs> temple. Yeah, I've heard the same. Well, yes, in a matter of days, right? That's a cynical idea. You can make an app that like alerts members when there are two apostles in Israel. <laughs> Thinking, oh, let's watch the news. And like something a battle happened. They'll be like, oh, you see... It's, uh, it's, um, it's fascinating. You know, when, when you give revelation, you want to be not specific. You want it to be interpreted in a, in a hundred different ways. And you, what, what you definitely want, I mean, here's the number one rule about re- revelation. It can be proven right, but it can never be proven wrong. <laughs> 
Like you can never say, oh, that didn't happen, right? I mean, if you look at this verse, there's no way to ever say, hey, you guys screwed up. Like there's no way to ever say, all right, it's been 3,000 years. Jesus didn't come. End it with the, the, the Jesus stuff already. Like there's, there's never a oh, yeah. in the world can oh, say there, that. In the last days, there will be ro- wars and rumors of wars, unlike the rest. Of what, what time when there wasn't that? Right. When has there not been that? Right, right. And there'll be people saying that these scriptures kind of don't make sense and are self-contradictory. That's a sign of the time. Yeah, yeah, that they don't, that even the very elect will be deceived. Well, and you, the fact that people leave the church, that's a sign the church is true, obviously. It's a, it's a weakness of, of our species gone to the next level. I mean, we see patterns in clouds, we see patterns in tea leaves, and then we start to take those patterns seriously. You find a book full of crazy metaphors, and you try hard enough, you'll line a few things up. Yeah, and that's, I was referring to that, uh, that book that I read, and that's basically what it said. This book is so powerful because it's such nonsense. <laughs> and, and you can put whatever you want into it. And, and, and even, you know, even, you know, my indication that some people believe these are missionaries. Some people believe they're apostles. And said, and I would like to speak to the believing it's missionaries. I remember being a seminary student in the late nineties and hearing about, Oh, you know, so I knew somebody who got his patriarchal blessing and, and it, he says he goes on his mission and he's going to be called Israel because he's going to be one of those two guys. Mm-hmm. Now that, you know, I'm 30 years old. Well, he I, wasn't I, righteous I, enough. I, think about I, he, he must have, yeah, he uh, must uh, masturbated no too much or he didn't <laughs> collect fast offerings at one time and, uh, the, his patriarchal blessing. We could blessing, have been living in yeah. paradisical glory if that guy had just left just his wanker together. Alone. I know. Yeah. Wait. So Boyd, Boyd K. Packer was right. So think about how hard it is to like proselyte today in like Tokyo or Paris. Can you imagine <laughs> like Tel Aviv, like, like two missionaries like knocking doors? Uh, it just the, the 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 hubris of the idea for 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 one thing. You know that that hey, and there's this whole narrative that feeds into this of Mormonism is going to be, um, and this goes to the business ethic. Mormonism is going to sit there, the shining light on a hill. And while everything else falls down, the malls and the churches and everything will be in good repair. And the government, how many of you have heard, <laughs> hey, the government looks towards the church for the for mm-hmm. how to run a welfare system? Or, you know, companies model their corporate structure after the structure of the priesthood. The FBI likes missionaries. Actually, I think that might be true, though. I, I think that one actually is verified. Which, what, what? The FBI I, likes missionaries because they speak foreign language and generally don't have a criminal history. I, well, they, also, they are unquestioning to authority for the most part. They they don't have problems with, they tend not to have alcohol problems or problems with um, prostitutes or, and they, um, and they are very obedient. They're used mm-hmm. to taking orders. I know. Just You're the companies me. I've worked for, when, uh, this is going to make me sound really bad. <laughs> I like having Mormons work for me or, you know, in projects sideways because they don't work tons of hours. Like, this is a downside. They, you won't find Mormons generally working 65, 70 hours. They go home at the end of the workday. So that's, that's the downside. But they also tend not to be real politically savvy in, <laughs> like, like they tend to be fairly loyal. They tend to be fairly obedient. They're not, they don't, you know, come into work like all hungover on Mondays and they, they go and they work and they get their work done and they go home and they're really easy, um, to have. And they, they, they tend to be bright. They tend to be well educated. Um, I love working with Mormons. They, and they, then I work in technology, so it's not like, you know, there's a lot of like controversy about co-op <laughs> or anything in, 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 in how you code a computer, so. Well, the, you know, you gotta get deep enough in the yeah, code just first. Don't any, <laughs> just don't put any liberal code in there, it's fine. <laughs> but on the network, they name the printers and servers after Book of Mormon characters. You do see that sort of thing oh, happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so this, this chapter's uh, fairly interesting. I, I think, I think we've established that, um, there's Mormons are still interested in this in this millennialist um, apocalyptic view of 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 what's happening, but I I I think that more and more we we see this disconnect um, between the the statistics and the polls. Like when Pew or whoever comes out and says where people are, Mormons skew very young Earth creationist. But if you listen to the spokesman for the church. And the church has these spokes liberals. And these spokes liberals are really interesting, intelligent people. And I, I, I like them all. I've met a bunch of them and they're all really nice people. We're talking about people like Joanna Brooks. Mm-hmm. 
And the church loves these people because they, the church can distance themselves from them at any time. Um, but, and they would have you believe that Mormonism and evolution have nothing, have no sort of conflict. But then when you look at the statistics of the breakdown, Mormons skew very fundamentalist. And this is why. This is that outside, we're going to tell the rest of the world, no, no, look at all the scientists we have. Look at all the educated people we have. We are in the world, we're progressive, but inside, in fast and testimony meeting, you'll hear people every couple months get up and talk about, oh, I know we're living in the last times, it's the last day, and it won't be very long before the, the two prophets get mowed down in the streets of Jerusalem or, or whatever. So, so, so there's this inside-outside communication, and you see it very clearly here, that these guys are talking shit because it's right here in Doctrine and Covenants. It's canonized. It's been canonized for 150 years. There's no getting around the fact that it very explicitly says that they're younger. Well, it's it, this is essential, right? You talk about members who interpret it as missionaries who get gunned down and people who are sure it's going to be members of the Quorum of the Twelve uh, in Jerusalem, right? That flexibility to interpret it your own way is essential to keeping people indoctrinated because they're not hit with a jarring con, um, contradiction from a leader, right? So the leaders will never clarify any doctrine. They can't because they know that people have resolved so much of the nonsense in a very narrow way just to keep their testimony intact that if they come out and clarify and say, well, it's not literally true, then there's a whole swath of people who whose testimony break under that weight. Right. right? So you, you have these other lackeys uh, dealing with the apologetics and the leadership just says fluff. Oh, and the church just has this nebulous position. They can dance from spot to spot. They're just like a quantum theory. Right. Yeah, well, right. that's the advantage of never making a solid claim, right? You can just say, you know, oh, some soft answer that doesn't really answer the question, but we just, you know, we don't worry too much about that. And, and if you look at conference, it's been a long time. Conference talks used to be very interesting. People would get up and talk about, well, what does this mean? And what does this mean? And, and what do we believe about this? That, that, there's very little they talk about doctrinal beliefs. You know, they talk about beliefs like that we should help one another and stuff that every organization in the world talks about. Um, but, but it's, it's very rare in conference. So, so what they've done is they've set up all these institutions and quasi church institutions that can, that can go out and say the church loves all these organizations that are being set up by, and oftentimes they're set up by people who've left the church or whatever, but they're about sort of moving the doctrine. Um, and the church, the church really likes these things because it moves the talk away from the church. The church has plausible deniability and the church doesn't have to own these things. They can test these doctrines out. If some liberal organization comes up and starts telling stories. It's a good theory. That, that, um, that, uh, say something or the other and it, and it, it takes root. Then the church can sort of gravitate that way without ever getting up in conference and acknowledging it. And 10, 15 years, it's now permeated the culture, and you've got your next generation up and coming that just thinks all the old fogies that don't know that this is how it is are just holding on to, you know, some archaic thing where it just wasn't clear because, oh, they're old and don't know anything. Right, right, right. Oh, he's speaking as a man. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But here it is. The church has a problem with Doctrine and Covenants. It's full of crazy stuff. And... um and specific stuff. Specific stuff. <laughs> that they kind of can't, they can't, uh, fuzzy the air with. I mean, even in the study guides, they just reinforce specific interpretation like the 7,000 years. Right. And you see interesting things like we talked about this in the DNC 132. They, they blatantly will skip over some of the most problematic things where if you look at the church, cause, cause you, you can look at this hierarchy. The church, how many people in the church don't speak English? Uh, there's a high number, a high percentage. Well, if you look at the Sunday School Manual and what's covered in the Sunday School Manual versus the Institute Manual, well, the Institute Manual has not been translated into 44 languages. I'd be surprised if it's been translated into five. Um, and, and so most of the membership just has no access to any of this stuff. And I know um, from, you know, I, I studied linguistics, and so I, I was more familiar with all the different writings that the church had done in Asia and they would, pick to, in order to reproduce King James English, they would actually pick archaic forms of the, of the Asian languages, which would make the scriptures all that more much more difficult to 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 read. Um, you know, so like in the Thai and Laotian scriptures, they would use old like Bali terms for for things, 
or, or Sanskrit terms that nobody uses anymore because they wanted it to sound like elevated. You know, like scholars would know these terms, but regular people wouldn't. Well, what does that do? It makes the scripture seem mysterious. Well, it makes yeah, it, they it, can't read them. They're, <laughs> they know the argument from antiquity works, so let's stick with that. Right, so right. keep the people busy trying to figure out what it means, and it's on them. Well, it gives it an air of authority. Oh, it's old, so therefore it's more credible. Right, right. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's blatant fraud. Like, yeah. like if you take and translate the, the, the scriptures <laughs> into old forms of Japanese, it's not in that. That would be like taking something that's written in in um, I, I don't know Swahili today and translating it into Shakespearean English. Yeah, it would give it this air of being old, but it's not. And and it's it's a deceptive act. Um, yeah, it's not about communication. It's not about clarity. It's not about the message. It's about beefing up their their apparent credibility. And, but I, I, I love, and I skipped over some of this stuff. I actually, if, if we had another three hours to go over the language of this and, and why you can answer a question and have an answer that doesn't have any answer at all <laughs> in it is, is a, is a wonderful aspect of religion that's, uh, that's admirable in some sort of perverse way. Kind of like watching Breaking Bad is admirable about <laughs> how they get all this meth, um, out. And, and, and it's, it's fascinating how you can have a Q&A on Revelation and leave and not know anything more about the book of Revelation. Except, Evolution and Mormonism don't. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's be clear on that point. The church doctrine is young earth creationism. There's no escaping that. And, and we don't have time to talk about it today. Maybe in a, in a few weeks we can bring up the, the big problem for Mormonism and evolution is, of course, Mormonism relies 100% on the idea there's no death before the fall. You have to have a fall. Well, you, you have to you, have a literal fall mm-hmm. in order for their need to have a need for a literal redeemer. Well, yes. y- you know, John, I can explain this whole thing on one thing. God was obviously only speaking as a man when he gave this <laughs> revelation to Joseph Smith. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Um, any last, any last words on DNC 77? No, that was fun. Thanks. We need to, um, I need to get on the website and assemble our DNC together. Just maybe in another 20 years, we'll have done the whole book. <laughs> I, I look forward to it. All right. Well, um, thanks for joining us, guys. Um, you, you are all wonderful. Um, like always, you can head over to the website. We're putting new things up there, like our recording schedule. Remember, I'm starting February 4th, uh, 2014. We'll be recording live on most Tuesdays, not all Tuesdays. Sometimes I go do other things, but most Tuesdays, um, live at the, um, studio, which is at 423 West, 800 South, um, Suite 110A, around in the back. Um, and you can come hang out with us. Um, you guys are, we're, we're actually doing, uh, we're actually doing, uh, what, what do we call it? Our soft opening. We're, we're mm-hmm. testing out equipment here. So That's you guys right. are sitting in, sitting in the studio as we speak. That's right. Yep. It's, it's beta test. Plush. Well lit. Cushy. Yeah. Love it. It's good. I, th- I think it's going to be fun. I, I think you're going to have to do something about this nightclub lighting though. I don't, I don't think you want to give we, the wrong. I, I have the, the electrician. I've got the job bit out. We are going to, um, um, get some lighting in here and, and, and it's, it's, um, it's bright. Um, and so there's some other great things happening. I'd say check out the website, check, go on over to Whitefields Educational, um, check out what we're doing there. We have some really interesting things coming up, some, just some time that you can come hang out here, meet other people, drink some coffee and, uh, and, uh, and get to know some other great people. I am still doing the coffee mug campaign. I don't know if I've announced it on the podcast. Um, we, we do want to, uh, lower our earth, um, destroying footprint um, by not using paper or plastic so um, we're collecting coffee mugs we want a coffee mug from where you are at so send us a coffee mug that either speaks to who you are or the place you live in um, and we're going to put them up on the wall so we can see um, our reach and you can send those to the same address 423 west 800 south suite 110 it's uh, salt lake city utah 84101 care of coffee mug and we'll find it all right Well, thanks, everybody. Good night. Thanks, John.